You're going to have to bring that down some. Sorry, it's just too ringy. Um, the, uh, you, you might have seen, uh, if you've been watching Thursology at all, you might be saying, Revelation 1, wait a second, wait a second. Is this going to be a Thursology? No, this is a Sundology, um, not a Thursology. And, uh, uh, but we're, uh, I want you to notice something. This is the first chapter of the book of Revelation, and almost everybody here probably knows that the book of Revelation is about the end times. But what's amazing is the first thing John does after the brief salutation is he makes a statement to seven local churches that actually is the fundamental statement of the power of the gospel for the universal church for all of the ages. Look at what he says. It'll be on the screen. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us. And you ready? Here it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And set us free from our sins at the cost of his blood. The staggering significance of this statement is easy to blow right by, especially since if you go to read the Revelation, you're often looking for, okay, what's going to happen in the last days? What's going to happen in the end times? The tribulation starts in chapter 6. The, the middle of the tribulation is like a, you know, 11, 12 through 15, 16, and then you get these horrible things going on, and then Jesus in chapter 9, the glorious appearing, and then you end up with this incredible millennium, and then the new heaven and the new earth, and that's what you're going there, and you could easily blow right past this, but you ready? The foundation of the great purpose of the gospel was just stated here, and here's your first blanks, write it in. Christ didn't just come to forgive us of our sins. I'm glad he came to forgive sins, aren't you? I'm glad that that's one of the things that Jesus came to do. But Christ didn't just come to forgive us of his sins. He actually came to set us free from our sins. Now, if you really let this understanding of the great purpose of the gospel sink in, it brings up a series of obvious questions in our day that beg to be answered. As you look around the modern church, it's obvious that there are a lot of people who claim that they follow Christ who don't look at all like they've been freed from sin. In fact, you ready? It looks like a lot of the church doesn't even want to. Oops. <laughs> Can't we get to the eschatology, Dan? Um, no, we can't get past this because the eschatology flows from this fundamental amazing thing. So this morning, we're going to dive right into this issue of looking at questions that reliably come up about sin in the life of believers. Question number one, here's your blank. Doesn't everyone, doesn't everyone, including believers, live in sin? This question actually comes from an error that's taught in many churches. They teach that the gospel, that free, it frees us from the condemnation of sin, but not from the power of sin. It teaches that it frees us from the guilt of sin, but not from the sin itself. But that's not what the text says. In other words, many teach that Christianity is a sinning religion. Listen, church. 
Christianity is a sinning religion. The Christians continue to live in sin just as they did before they knew Christ. The difference is, is that now you're a Christian, so you're supposed to feel badly about your sin, and you're supposed to say you're sorry for your sin, and you're supposed to say that you, know, you need forgiveness for your sin, and you're supposed to even try hard not to sin. But the bottom line to this false teaching is you're still a sinner. You're still a sinner. You're a sinning saint, you're still a sinner, just like you always are. Now the good news is what's changed is you don't go to hell for it. What a miserable gospel. Let me say it this way. Many churches today teach that living in sin isn't just a possibility in the life of a Christian, it's actually inevitable. Nothing we can do about it. And because of this teaching, turn with me to the book of Romans. It's right after the Corinthians, okay, and right before it gets into the smaller epistles uh, in, the new, in the New Testament, uh, Romans chapter 5. And, and because this teaching that I just talked about is so common, I want us to look at one passage among literally scores of passages that we could look at that directly contradicts this error. You're just like you were before you were, now you're just forgiven, you live the same way, or you've gotten a few things better, and maybe you pay tithe and go to church, but you're, you're still fundamentally the same, this concept. But look at this. This is really a remarkable passage. Look at five, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, and the, law, and the law came in that the transgress, transgression might increase. In other words, before we were told the law, we would have been able to claim some ignorance. Uh, but there, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What a magnificent truth of God. That... As sin reigned in death, by the way, make sure you understand, it doesn't matter how evil you were. It never gets bigger than God's grace. It's impossible to be bigger than the grace of God, no matter how evil sin is. So, so make sure you know that's true. But look, at as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now watch this. What shall we say then, verse 1 of, of uh, chapter 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Sounds like Barna's work, doesn't it? Yeehaw! God loves to forgive and I love to sin. We have a great thing going. Look at this verse. It could have been written today. By the way, this is why there is no new age. The new age is just the old age all over again, and that's why we don't need a new word of God. Nothing ever changes. Listen, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Now this, okay, you ready? They do, most translators add an exclamation point where it says, my, my translation says, may it never be. Exclamation point. This doesn't translate well. So I've read through the translators and the commentaries and I've, I've kind of put together their overall concept of what this would be in modern American English. Okay, you ready? And so let's look at verse one again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And the response in modern English is, are you out of your mind? The reality is, the way Paul and the apostles would have actually said this phrase would have been very guttural, almost like, ah! Have you had a stroke? What are you thinking? And then look, it goes on. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Did you know when you were baptized, you died to yourself? That's going under. You were drowned. Your sins were drowned. So look at this. Therefore... Uh, excuse me, or uh, uh, verse two, may it never be, so that we who've died to sin, shall we still live in it? And then I think we go to verse five, for uh, it has become united, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly 
we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, what a great statement. That our old self was crucified with him. That our body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. Go down to verse 12, new paragraph. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as, to, as sin to instruments of righteousness, but present, of unrighteousness, excuse me, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. You know, that's when you come out of the water. Fortunately, Pastor Kurt doesn't keep you under for more than two or three minutes, right? Because you're still alive when you come up, and that's the point. That's why everybody celebrates when we come out, right? So notice that uh, we ourselves are alive, to, uh, alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Paul completely flips the bad theology on its head. Yay, when we sin more, grace gets more. No, he's saying the reason why you have some awesome grace and the reason what happens when you respond to the awesome grace is that now you're no longer mastered by sin. There's victory over it. And then look uh, with me at verse uh, 17. But thanks be to God, though, though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed and, ready? Are we picking up on a pattern here? Having been freed from sin you became slaves of righteousness. So question number one, again, doesn't everyone, including believers, live in sin? The biblical answer is an emphatic no. If you're watching TV preachers that don't preach this gospel, then you're listening to false teaching. Question number two, how do I know, here's your blank, how, how do I know the difference between experiencing false guilt? This is really important for those who, of all of us, deal with this. How do I know the difference between experiencing false guilt and the true and healthy conviction of the Holy Spirit? By the way, they can feel the same. The accusation of the enemy and the true conviction of the Holy Spirit can feel very, very similar. So for those who genuinely want to please God, it can be difficult to know when feelings of shame are an attack of the, from the enemy versus when they're actually God's redemptive work in our life convicting us of real sin. So here are two key concepts that I think will help us differentiate between these two things. Here's key concept number one. Ready? Number one, the accusations of the enemy. The accusations of the enemy are general, vague, and irredeemable. Okay, that's a, kind of an old English term, so it, basically, there's nothing you can do about it. They're general, they're vague, and there's nothing you can do about it. So let me give some examples. Here's what the enemy accusation is like. God would never save someone with your past. Oh, no, wait a second. We just heard. When sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. You can't get a big enough sin that it can't be forgiven by God. So that, listen to that, that's an accusation that's actually a lie. A real Christian would never done what you've done. And see, everybody looks really nice in church and dresses up mostly, right, and all that kind of stuff, and you look around and say, oh my goodness, if they only knew what I've done. And the enemy comes in and uses that and says, no, all those other people at church, they're better than you. They don't, if they knew your past, they wouldn't even let you in the door. Enemy. <laughs> now, no matter how hard you try, there's no hope for you. That's the enemy. 
It's vague, it's general, it's, there's nothing you can do. What can you do about that? A person like you could never be saved. Um, since you're, you keep failing, you'll never be able to have victory. So notice, there's nothing you can do with that. There's no altar call for, you're just not good enough to be saved, okay? So this is what the accusations of the enemy are like, but look at key concept number two, here's your blanks. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is specific. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is specific and calls you specifically to repent. Specifically, okay, you ready? Here's what the Holy Spirit sounds like. You're talking about others, and that's gossip. So stop gossiping and repent of your sin. Wow, not sure which one I like better, how about you? Okay, okay, you were unfairly, because see the first one I have the, I have the, I have the out, that, well, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Well, <laughs> stop gossiping, repent, uh, it, that's pretty specific. You were unfairly critical of that person and you need to ask them to forgive you. Ooh, bummer. The pornography you're looking at is lust and you need to repent and confess it to someone who will hold you accountable to stop this sin. That is the Holy Spirit. Your words hurt your spouse and you need to say you're, you're sorry. Uh, this will be ugly. When you accept that cash income and you don't report it to the IRS, that's stealing. Jesus knows that you hate the IRS and so do I. But he also rendered unto Caesar that which was Caesar's. The word of God says that's stealing. Oh man, I, didn't the Holy Spirit just drive you nuts? And the problem is he knows everything that we're doing. So this is how the Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit says stuff like, you're having sexual intimacy with someone you're not married to. Stop, repent, and wait till you're married. Ooh, there it is. So notice the conviction of the Holy Spirit is specific and it calls you to specifically repent and it calls you to change. Understanding these two key concepts will help you know when you should ignore the false guilt of the enemy. You can take away all that, no, you, God just couldn't save somebody like you, it's, it's over. That's false, it's the enemy, reject it. But when the spirit comes and says, I'm nailing you on this, repent and turn from it, it's the Holy Spirit. Question number three, here, you, here it is. How do I know that I've truly been forgiven of my sins? It's amazing to me how many believers have asked me this question over the years. The enemy loves it when you spend emotional energy on past sins, Christian. He loves that. If you've been forgiven and if you've turned from that sin and you're still feeling guilty about it, then it's time to remember, listen, your life in Christ isn't based upon feelings. Your life in Christ is based on the promises of God, and God never fails to follow through on his promises. So you have, if you've been truly forgiven and you've turned from your sin, then you can stand and claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9. You may be familiar of it. Look at, look at it on the screen. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Listen, church, he is faithful. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Any unrighteousness not covered? No, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Question number four, if I stumble, does it mean that I'm not really a Christian? People ask this question a lot. Now let me clarify something. We're not talking about mistakes or errors in judgment or just being human and fallible. 
not having all wisdom. Sometimes we just do, we think we're doing the right thing. It's, it may be God knows it's the wrong thing, but we just literally don't know. It has nothing to do with rebellion or trying to be out of God's will. It's just we're fallible. And this confusion, this confusion today of, of this concept of, of sin and mistakes comes from the common interchangeable use of the word mistake and sin. You ready? Pay attention. Let me unpack these, these issues. Issue number one, write it in. Even though a mistake is unintentional, you may still need to ask someone for forgiveness. And you may even need to make restitution. Okay, so for instance, you back into someone's car. <laughs> you didn't mean to. It's not a sin. It's, it's not, you didn't, obviously it's just a, an error. It's just a human error. And, but you know what? You need to genuinely say, I'm sorry that I did that to your car. And guess what? You need to pay for the damage. So notice, it was a mistake, it was unintentional, it wasn't sin, but you still need to say you're sorry, recognize that you did something that harmed them, and do what you can to restore the harm. So, uh, number two, number two, issue number two. In the sense that we're talking about now, a sin and a mistake are not the same. We're living in a generation where the word mistake is conveniently misused all the time. For example, perfect timing since it's all about politics now. When politicians get caught in a lie or embezzling money, their public confession almost always goes something like this. This is so universal, let me show you. I put it on the slide so you can just see it because we've all seen this on the news no matter which news we watch. Ready? Here's the caught person's lie. Ready? Is it coming up? All right. I made a huge mistake and, and had an error in judgment and I'm deeply sorry for my failure to properly understand the implications of my actions to which we all say that is a load of bunk. It's a complete misuse of the word mistake, isn't it? You know what they were doing? They were intentionally breaking trust. They were misusing their power and their position for their own gain. And they didn't care if it hurt other people. And their only real regret is what? <laughs> you guys could preach this message. They got caught. It wasn't a mistake. It was literally being evil but nobody wants to say that anymore. So be careful when you use the phrase, I stumbled, or I made a mistake. If what you did was an intentional decision to step out outside of God's word, then it is in his will, then it's sin. We're not talking about mistakes, accidents. We're talking about intentional sin. So don't sugarcoat it, name it. Call it what it is. Look again at question number four. If I stumble, does that mean that I'm not really a Christian? Here are two key truths that we deal with here. Truth number one. Truth number one. A true Christian is still capable of choosing to disobey God. By the way, did you know that the, your, free, your free will, your free choice that allowed you to respond to the gospel, it's all of him that allowed you to respond to the gospel. Do you know that doesn't go away when you become a believer? Um, a true Christian is still capable of choosing to disobey God. So a single sinful choice isn't what determines whether a person is a true believer or not. What determines whether their faith is real is their response to the fact that they know they've disobeyed God. This is really important. In fact, 
1 John is incredibly instructive here. Look at it from 1 John chapter 2. My little children, look at, the, look at both of the truths taught here. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Remember, that's the intent of the gospel, freed from sin. But look at this. And if we, anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So notice, the whole reason John wrote was to remind us that believers are not supposed to sin and that God gives us the power not to sin. In fact, we just read those words straight out of Revelation 1 in Romans chapter 6. The power of the resurrection gives us power to be freed from sin. But if we sin, aren't you glad? We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But to clear up any thinking that this means that true believers can walk in sin as an ongoing pattern and just keep saying, well, I have an advocate, I have an advocate, but I'm living outside of God's will. John goes on to teach truth number two. Here's your blank. While true believers may intentionally sin, this is the exceptional situation. This is the exceptional situation, and it's not the way they live. Let me say this another way. Disbelieve or disobeys God, they have a choice, right? When you become aware, when the Spirit convicts and we become aware that we have stepped out of God's way, we can either repent, receive forgiveness, and turn from that sin through God's grace, or we can continue to say, I know the Spirit is convicting me, and I know this is wrong, but I'm going to continue to live that way. Unfortunately, there are many who teach that obedience is optional, Lots of the church teaches that holiness is for the exceptional saint, and most believers are simply doomed to live in recurrent sin with no hope for victory until after they die and go to heaven. And John clearly identified this kind of teaching as false teaching. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. No one who is born of God practices sin. I love the use of the Greek term there, practices. It doesn't mean you can't possibly do a sin. It means you don't live that way. Notice, because his seed, the Spirit's seed, abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now notice, in the context, it doesn't mean he's lost his possibility of saying no to God. That's not what it's it's meaning. It's meaning that now you're filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit does righteous things, and He lives through you and in you, of course you're not gonna live in sin. So notice, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So the reality of a person's faith is found in their practice of godliness, and when they find themselves to be ungodly, their response to finding out that they are living an ungodly way. So John tells us the true believer, because Jesus is their advocate, immediately repents and restores the relationship with God. But if someone lives in willful disobedience, John calls that practicing sin, living in sin. And he says that's how you tell the difference between people who are born of God and born of the devil. Okay, so... Today, if you claim to be a believer and yet you're disobeying the word of God, then don't deceive yourself. Don't count on some previous salvation experience 
or some theological twist of how you interpret uh, Scripture, and don't allow going to church or being religious to cover ongoing willful disobedience in your life because none of those things save you. The grace of God through repentance and turning through the power of the Spirit is what saves us. So the questions we're dealing with this morning have come from the concern that we all fall short of perfection. We know that. God knows that. And because of this, a lot of Christians struggle with wondering whether they really have come to know Christ or whether they've just been fooling themselves, kind of, right, being religious, playing church. So this morning, I hope to deal with this this issue in our application. Here's your blanks. One of the most important identifiers of Christ-likeness is what a person does. Listen, it's what a person does when they realize that they've harmed their relationship with God. Before God was judged because there was nobody to judge. It was just him. So God wasn't always judge. Isn't that remarkable to think about? There was nobody to judge. It was just him. But you know what he's always been? Always been a father in relationship. The primary disaster in sin is it says, I don't want that father. I want other stuff. So notice, this, the issues of being uh, like this have been around for a really long time. So I want us to, to, to go back 3,000 years to the life of King David. You know he's renowned for his fearless faith, but he's also renowned for being slightly falling short of perfection, like spectacularly. How about adultery and murder? Pretty big failing to be perfect, right? He blew it big time, and yet the word teaches that despite all of his shortcomings, he was also renowned for having a heart for God. What? How, I don't understand. How do those two things go together? So I'd like us to look at an event that happened near the end of David's life. And we'll find that he still hadn't become perfect in his performance, but by looking at one of the relatively obscure failures, relatively obscure sins in David's life, we'll find out what a person who has a heart for God does when they realize that they've grieved their Lord. Now, to set this up, let's look at several passages that tell us where a godly king places their trust. Look at it on the, on the screen. A king is not saved by a mighty army. This is, David wrote these. He knew this stuff. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Preach it, David. That's right. A king doesn't trust in that. Look at Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. David had written those truths and psalms. So a king who was great in God's eyes was one who put all their trust in him, and they didn't place their hope in the strength of armies or weapons. And now we have, turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 24, Second Samuel chapter 24, uh, you'll find the, the Samuels along with right before the kings and the chronicles, right after uh, uh, jo- Josh, Joshua judges, uh, and um, it's a big book, about 20% in your Bible. It's the last chapter, chapter 24, and we, we now have the background to understand why a decision that David made in his old age was displeasing to God. Look with me at verse 2, chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. Verse 2, and the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, 
Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, go about, excuse me, verse three, but Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the king's, the eyes of, the, the, of my Lord the king is, can still see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? In other words, Joab's saying, David, God will give you a hundred times as many people in your army if you need it. Your trust isn't in them. Your trust is in God. So notice God's faithful accountability partner in the general Joab. Nevertheless, verse four, the king's word prevailed and Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people. Look at verse nine, the last verse in that paragraph. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel, (laughs) look who he was actually counting, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So notice what David was doing. This wasn't just a routine national census every decade, right? He was counting the size of his armies. This census was faithlessness on David's part. So notice what happens in the very next verse. Very striking. Next verse. Now David, verse 10, David's heart troubled him after he did the, had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted foolishly. This verse and the ones that follow us show us some valuable lessons that David had learned in the years after his big, famous sin. You may not even know about this one. It's pretty obscure. Look at lesson number one. David had become very sensitive to knowing when he had harmed his relationship with the Lord. And now let's look at the differences in this sin and his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Difference number one. It didn't take spectacular sin for David to sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? Compare this indiscretion to his sins of adultery and murder. All he did was take a census. But as soon as he did it, he realized that it was a lack of faith that had caused him to number his soldiers. And this meant that he was beginning the spiritual slide into trusting in armies rather than trusting in God. And David realized that the great sin is the pride that I can do it in my strength and I don't need God. It's that pride of lack of trust. And he became so sensitive, even slight alterations in his walk with the Lord, he was so intent with pleasing God that he wanted nothing between him and his master. What a great description of a person who has a heart for God. I just don't want anything between God and me. No, I don't want spectacular sins between God and me, but you know what? I also don't want the subtle slide that shows God that I don't really depend on him. I really depend on me. Difference number two. This time, God didn't have to send a prophet to point out his sin, right? Remember his famous sin earlier? David hid it for at least a year because we know the baby has already come and God had to send Nathan the prophet to call him out. But now David's heart had become sensitive to the inner voice of God and he had become attuned to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, as you mature in the Lord, are you becoming attuned 
to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. D- difference number three, ready? His awareness, here's your blank. His awareness that he had broken trust with the Lord was immediate. Look at the proximity of his sinful act and then his awareness of guilt. Verse nine, and the Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king and there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And look at the very next paragraph. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. This is a key attribute of walking closely with God. It's really dangerous to delay our repentance, to have a plan to stop sinning someday, enjoy it for a while. It's when we tolerate sin hanging around in our life without immediately confessing and turning from it, guess what happens? God's voice becomes softer and softer over time and our heart becomes harder and harder and we lose the ability to hear God's voice and guess what? When we lose the ability to hear God's voice, all is lost. All is lost. Nothing else matters when that happens. Difference number four, here's your blanks. There wasn't a hint of self-justification in his confession. Remember Saul? You know why Saul lost the kingship and David kept it? Saul said, the people made me do this. Look at, this is remarkable. Look at verse 10 again. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. Wouldn't you love to hear a politician say that? I would vote for them if one of them would say that. I have sinned greatly. Whoa, incredible. In what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Lesson number two, ready? Lesson number two, he wasn't willing to allow someone else to pay the price for his sin. Whoa. See, because David was the king of a nation, his sin led to a national disaster. Unfortunately, that's how sin is. Guess who pays the big price for the sins of the parents? The children. Someone else pays the price often for sin. Even though this sin doesn't seem that big of a deal, it had consequences that tragically impacted everyone within David's scope of influence, the whole kingdom. Now, don't get stuck on the amazing aspects of the theological and philosophical questions here. That's why, listen to Thursology. We deal with questions like that. We don't have deal for that, time to deal for it. So stay on task here, but look at, the, at verse 15, the next paragraph. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough Now relax your hand. What a calamity David's sin had caused. Now I want us to go back many years to David's famous sin. After his adultery with Bathsheba, she became pregnant. And so David gets this great plan, right? Bring the husband back from battle. Let him stay for a few days, he'll go home, and they'll have relations, and obviously everybody's going to think this is great. Everybody's going to think it's Uriah's baby, her husband's baby. So that's all going on, but despite his attempt to get Uriah to go home, if you read that section, that whole section, it'll, dry, it'll say God is just slapping David around. 
I mean, he gets the guy drunk and he still won't go home to be with his wife. He stays outside. Why? Because his honor is so high and his integrity is so great that he's saying, none of the other soldiers get to come home and be with their wives, so I'm just going to sleep on the stairs of the palace during the night. So David tries all of this stuff and he realizes he's not going to lose his integrity. So guess what he does? He, he gives, he gives a, a letter, turns out it's Uriah's own death letter, to Uriah, and Uriah's integrity is so high, David has no concern that he's going to open it and read it and realize it's a, his own death letter. Look at this, a real quandary. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's on the screen. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So, it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah in the place where he knew that there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite died. Look at this. In his early sin, somebody else paid the price for David's sin. But now let's look back to the census in 2 Samuel 24. It's later in his life, and rather than trying to hide his, sin and hide his sin and weasel out of the consequences that he did with his adultery, David took the responsibility, and look at what happens in verse 17. Remarkable. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong, but these sheep, he's talking about the people that are dying from the plague, these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Oh, how had David grown. It wasn't impossible for David to lose trust in God and to realize that he had sinned, but how had he grown? Immediately says, it's my fault, and Lord, please don't make anybody else pay the price for my sin. Lesson number three, here's your blank. He came to understand that sin is costly. Hmm. He came to understand that sin is costly, and he was willing to sacrifice to set things right. Look at verse 18, next paragraph, last paragraph of this uh, book of 2 Samuel, actually. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Notice where all his focus is now. He's not asking that the plague be held back from him. He wants the plague to be held back from the people. It's remarkable what's happened in David's heart. Verse 22, and Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. In other words, he's saying, David, you don't have to buy this from me. You're the king. Here, you can have the threshing floor and you can build the altar and here's all the wood and here's everything to burn, do the burnt sacrifice on. Look at this, verse 24. However, the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David 
bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built an altar to the Lord and offered the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by his entreaty for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. Listen to these incredible words again from David. Oh, what a difference. Rather than letting Uriah die for his sin. Look at this. However, the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Oh, that convicts me. So as we finish this morning, I'd like to ask three questions that flow from the lessons that David, we've learned from David. First, have you become sensitive to knowing when you've harmed your relationship with God? And do you immediately restore it when you identify sin in your life? Really straightforward. Sensitive that I've broken relationship and immediately returning. That's what a Christian, you ready? That's what great Christians have always done. That's what the one who did, who Jesus, he is such a great king, Jesus is gonna sit on David's throne. That's what an amazing person is. He wasn't sin free, but oh my, he had learned, know when you've broken trust with God and immediately turn. Second, are you willing to take responsibility for your sin rather than allowing someone else to pay the price? And third, do you understand how costly sin is? And are you willing to sacrifice to set things right? Pay as high a price as it takes to set things right? In the end, it all boils down to this. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to be sure that everything is right between God and us? That's the big question. Not the, oh, I, you know, am I really a Christian or not? The question's really simple. Have I done everything I can to say, Lord, change me so that everything is right between us? Josiah, Pastor Josiah, come on up. Uh, this morning, we've dealt with some questions that believers often grapple with. How do I know that I've really been forgiven of my sins? Or questions like, if I stumble, does it mean that I'm not really a Christian? These kinds of questions can relentlessly pursue some people. You may have come in today with that sense of guilt of, I know I'm supposed to be, you know, like this, and, and I'm not, Lord, what, you know, do I, am I really with you? Uh, and when we uh, play it loose with God's ways and we don't stay focused on his will for our lives, we can allow sin to compromise our walk with the Lord. We struggle with assurance and we struggle with knowing where we stand. So as we finish, let me give you some great news. Here's the good news. If we keep short accounts with sin and remain open to the voice of the Holy Spirit and do whatever is necessary to restore our relationship with him whenever we recognize that something's wrong, then we never have to worry. His promises are clear. We never need to live in fear of finding ourselves outside of God's grace. The question is, Lord, have I somehow lost you or whatever? The question is, Lord, is there anything specifically that you need me to repent of and turn from? And will you give me the power and free me because your resurrection allows freedom from that sin? You see, our God isn't looking for perfect performance. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for people whose heart is so completely his that when we have harmed our relationship with him, Everything else goes on pause. And what we care about is, Lord, how do I restore 
what we have. Remember, Jesus came to set us free from sin. And if we let him, (laughs) it's painful, but if we let him, he'll do it. Now, this morning, we're going to partake of communion. If you haven't gotten the communion uh, uh, elements, it's it's in the back. But before we do so, I'd like to take just a, a few minutes to ponder the Word and what it has taught us to examine ourselves. And as we do this, I want to read an an unusual, I think it'll be on the screen here, an unusual part of the classic text for the Lord's Supper. Um, But it doesn't often get read, but look at this. So then, it fits so perfectly with this morning. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Unworthy doesn't mean I'm fallen. Of course, we are all fallen. It means that I've allowed that broken relationship, something's walking, practicing in sin to come in. Uh, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Guess what? The Lord's Supper is serious. The Lord's Supper is about the very thing we've seen from the Word this morning. Right now, take a moment as Pastor Josiah sings, and let's examine ourselves and restore that great relationship. Pastor Josiah.